campus and then uh, welcome to everyone joining us online. Um, just let me know, everyone online, you can, can you hear me okay? Okay, so um, Libby and I are going to be sharing a screen, so I'll kind of swivel back and forth. Um, that will, um, we're going to be recording this as well for our Christchurch podcast. So um, as you all know, we, we have been offering a series on spiritual practices, and we began by looking at just the idea of spiritual formation. Then we moved to what is a rule of life and how might we structure our spiritual lives. And then um, and, and in the midst of that conversation, we talked a little bit about spiritual direction, which I'm gonna be talking with Libby about um, some more today. And then we um, last week had a guest, Sister Deborah from the Arkansas House of Prayer and a Sister of Mercy. And, and she shared with us about her prayer practices. But today we have the, the wonderful gift of having Libby Grobmeyer with us, who is one of our own, uh, a Christchurch parishioner. And um, But part of the reason that we wanted to have Libby here is, is Kate and I were working on the list of, of people that we wanted to, to have part of this series. Libby came up immediately because of her unique work as a chaplain, particularly a chaplain working with those who are in palliative care. And, um, and we thought that her, her voice could be really important. And then Libby also works as a spiritual director. And so we, we wanna hear a little bit about that. But so welcome Libby. Thank you. And I wanted to start by asking you about your, your journey into your work as a chaplain. How, how did that begin for you? Thank you for having me and thank you all for welcoming me. And I wanted to be here in person. So thank you for making that happen too. <clears throat> what I thought I'd do is give you a, a timeline of my life, a brief Reader's Digest version <laughs> that may appear as a straight line because I'm gonna do it in chronological order, but just, know that there were many fits and starts, circle backs, dips down, coming back up before I got from Libby in Cookville to Libby in Little Rock and here today. So just know that. And if there's anything that com comes up in my story that you'd like to know more about, I'm happy to talk more about that. And then we'll do some conversation about what I do now in the world. So I was born in Cookville, Tennessee. It's in the middle of the state, halfway between Nashville and Knoxville, small town when I grew up there. It's bustling university town now, city, not small city. Um, I'm the eldest of three children born to Betty and John Darwin. I had a sister two years younger than I and a brother two years younger than um, Betty, my sister. I grew up in Cookville. I went to college in Virginia at Mary Baldwin College, a woman's college, uh, where I met my husband, Mark, who's here today. Um, and we got married shortly after college and moved to Arkansas. And I've been here 
mostly ever since. Um, lived in Fayetteville, finally finished law school, then moved back to Little Rock, where I proceeded to be a mother and a house, housewife, and I raised three wonderful sons and <coughs> drove carpool, <clears throat> volunteered, made the trains run on time, all the things that um, I thought I was supposed to be doing. This was my persona that I presented to the world. The competent, capable, loving mother and um, community activist volunteer, good citizen. And all that worked just fine until 1992, when I found myself in the middle of what many people find themselves in, a midlife shift. It, it was a time where I found that who I was out there did not match who I was in here. I was living an incongruent life, as I would say now, but at that time, I just knew something was missing. So on March 10th, my birthday, I had breakfast with a friend at Bard's Cafe. Y'all remember Bard's? Mm -hmm. Anybody old enough to remember that? Mm -hmm. And um, so March 10th, 1993 was the day that my life changed and, it, and I began on a different trajectory. My friend who shares this birthday with me um, said during our breakfast, my Sunday school teacher, Marguerite Bergen, is going to start a class, a book group, and we're going to read um, inner, inner meaning of Jesus. What is it? Um, John Sanford's book, The Kingdom Within. A very short, simple, wise book that began a journey for me that continues to this day. I'm on it, sitting here with you all today. This is part of my journey too. But Marguerite was a mentor to me, a teacher, wise woman. I did dream work with her. She was my therapist. I, she encouraged me to trust my intuition about where I was being led. And so I did. I learned to trust myself, thanks to Marguerite. From Marguerite, I met another mentor, Jim Rush, Dr. Jim Rush, who was a, a Buddhist teacher, wise man as well, also um, professor at Philander Smith. And he introduced me to um, Buddhism and a more of a contemplative practice through there. I studied Sufi mystics. I was Rumi and Hafiz and Lala were my teachers. Poetry became really important to me as it still is. I studied Christian mystics too, like Meister Eckhart, who's still a very important influence on me. So all of these things were a journey um, that was ongoing through the 90s. And a big shift also happened for me in 2003, 
when Mark and I moved to Washington, D.C. for a year, which turned into eight years. But that and that that space, like the physical space, opened up something for me to to take a step back, like literally physically back from my life as as I had lived it in Little Rock to um, being kind of an anonymous person in Washington. Nobody had any expectations for me. I was Libby and without the imprint of wife, mother, daughter, sister, friend, volunteer, this, all these projections that I had had placed on me that I had willingly accepted. And those years were years of wonder for me. I can name three things that happened during that time that um, also led me toward where I am today. And the first was in 2004, I went on a pilgrimage to Spain to walk the Camino um, from St. John Pied de Port in France to Santiago de Compostela in Spain. That was so arduous and enlightening and, a, and, and open something in me. And happy to talk more about that later. But that the, the image of pilgrimage is something that resonates with me because uh, that's what we're all on is our own pilgrimage in of life. So um, the second thing that happened shortly thereafter when I returned from my pilgrimage I joined an EFM group, Education for Ministry, which I know many of you have been a part of. And I had considered doing that here, but the time was just never right um, for me to do that. But so I joined a group in Washington. And it's just, it's a fantastic experience. Such deep oh, connections are formed. There were eight of us in our group, and we stayed together for the entire four years. And told our stories and learned to be a good listener in that group. We uh, helped each other discern what our gifts might be, what our ministry might be. And um, you know, it's, it's kind of risk-taking to tell, tell your truth with a group of strangers. Although I would say from my experience as a chaplain, sometimes it's easier to tell your truth to a stranger. Uh, from, that, from my experience at EFM, I was told by my seven good friends who could see what we say in chaplain singing, they saw my back. They helped me see things that I couldn't see about myself. And they helped me claim some of my, um, my gifts. And they led me to a priest at the Washington National Cathedral who uh, encouraged me to be a lay Eucharistic minister there, which I was for probably four years. That was so, so eye-opening, and I still am a limb here. But at, at the cathedral, you, you do the cup. People get up, like literally get up from the back of this huge, beautiful church and make their own pilgrimage forward to receive the bread and the wine. And just seeing the look in the eyes of the people who came 
for as many different reasons as there were people to receive the bread and the wine was a wonderful, beautiful opening in my heart. So 2011 brings me home back to Little Rock. Little Rock's changed since 2003. And um, my children have grown, most are married, got a couple of grandchildren and Little Rock's downtown is booming. So Mark and I decided to re-enter Little Rock again physically in a different way. And we lived downtown, moved downtown, tried it out. We're still downtown, still like the, the energy of it. And that also brought us back to Christchurch because this is where Mark grew up at Christchurch. And we had um, gone to different parishes to the uh, cathedral here, but we came back home to Christchurch at that time. And we've been here ever since too. By happenstance, random fate, synchronicity, I picked up a magazine one day. And in that magazine was an article about the uh, pastoral care department at UAMS and the chaplaincy program there. I, for whatever reason, it took a lot of audacity now that I look back on it, thought that maybe that was something I could do. So I had a conversation with my um, former ENT, Dr. Reed Thompson, who I knew had started a, something I didn't even know what it was at the time, a palliative care program at UAMS. And he was someone who's, um, had also been a mentor to me. And he encouraged me to apply for this position. So he took me around, introduced me, and I applied and I was accepted to the program. So I spent a year, um, another year of wonder in the clinical pastoral education program at UAMS. And it's something that you probably did, right? And did you do a year of CPE? It's usually required by sem seminaries for their seminarians to do a unit of CPE. And September to September, 1600 hours, uh, very rigorous, it's physically demanding, but the main thing in CPE is telling your story bravely not holding back and learning to look at that story, examine it under a microscope by yourself, by your peers, by your supervisor, and with the hope that by doing so, you will discover what it is about yourself, your story, your life that is a barrier to being fully present with another human being. We're a level one trauma center at UAMS. And so I've, I've seen a lot and we've got, we have people from all over the state who come here for treatment, all over the world who come here for treatment. And so it's a very diverse um, population that we have as patients and families. When I finished in September, 
I was hired by UAMS to be a staff chaplain. And I divided my time in that role between the neonatal intensive care unit, labor and delivery, maternal and infant world, and the palliative care both ends, department. Both ends of life. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it could be um, disconnected, but there's really a, a great connection there. And I'm happy to talk more about that too. Then in 20, and during that time, I worked to become board certified. So that requires a lot of writing. And again, the more examination by, by, your, um, by your peers and by your supervisor. And so I became a board certified clinical chaplain and a clinical fellow in hospice and palliative care. In 2017, I, um, transition to working full-time for um, palliative care. And I have been doing that ever since. In December of 2016 <coughs> came, I bless you, a, a, a quite or disorienting experience. Um, my sister died suddenly and then her husband died suddenly three weeks after that. Then in that, so I was already a little discombobulated. My, my, my siblings and I were very, are very close and we formed what I see as a three-legged stool. So without, when that third leg was gone, my brother and I were trying to manage our relationship during all that. And, um, and we're still working, we're still teeter-tottering around, but we're better. And the year and a half that followed saw the deaths of my four mentors. Marguerite Bergen, who I mentioned earlier, my beloved first teacher. Um, Jim Rush, who introduced me to um, the beauty of Buddhism and the impermanence of life. Dr. Reed Thompson, who you all know and love and who was my first spiritual director. And someone I didn't mention, but someone who taught me so much in my palliative care training was Dr. Bob Limber, who was a, a, he changed careers late in life like, um, like Reed did and showed me, even though he was a physician, but he showed me what it looked like to be fully present with another person. He was hard of hearing, so he was forced by that to kind of lean in a little bit and do the head turn a little bit, and but it became a great gift to his patients because what was an impediment for him was a sign of intimacy for them. So he was a great mentor to me too. But all these, my, my rocks were uh, not there anymore. And that, that caused me to take a step back again 
and do some discernment work on the meaning of the deaths of my mentors for me. And my response was that it was my time to step forward and be a mentor to other people. And I began that by, again, audaciously sending in an application to uh, the Hayden Institute for Spiritual um, Direction and was accepted. And I began in 2019 there, two years of uh, lots of, it's, it's a Jungian based program that's located in at Canuga in North Carolina. I've been there before on different, at an Episcopal retreat center. I've been there on some different retreats before, so it was a familiar place to me. But the material, while similar in some ways to chaplaincy, is, is there are nuances and differences between the two vocations. So I began 2019 and I finished in March of 2021. So I have been doing some spiritual direction with some interesting women since then. And here I am today. Uh, I'm still a mother. I'm still a housewife. I'm still a, a um, I, I do a little carpool driving. I have six grandchildren, wonderful grandchildren. So three wonderful daughters-in-law. And I have a, a good life, but it was, it's a life that is more congruent to who I am. And here I am today. Thank you for the opportunity to tell my story. I have left out some stuff, but um, you get the, the gist of, I think if I'd had more time with, um, with the spiritual director back in the day, I would have seen these patterns that were opening for me. And, and thank goodness, when the student was ready, the teacher appeared and I said, yes. So thank you for allowing me to be here. I said, yeah. yes, today too. I'm learning to be brave. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much for, for sharing your story and, uh, and I want to invite, you know, this isn't just a time for me to ask questions, Libby, but if anything caught your attention that you'd like to know more about, please do um, ask your, your questions and for those of you online as well. Um, so while maybe you're formulating this, it just as you were sharing your story and you just mentioned the importance of that, of, of telling a story and for anyone who's been through EFM or um, the discernment process for those who go to, to, you know, go on to ordained ministry, or there's so many different opportunities where that's a big part of the work is learning to tell your story. And so I wonder uh, how that works both in your work as a chaplain for people who kind of are at the end of their story. Um, and, and then also for those who are under your, your direction um, as, a, as a spiritual director uh, um, and inviting them to tell that story before 
their their chances has, has run out. Um, I mean, that's not the best way to put it, but um, but but the importance of kind of learning to to understand where you've come from and the patterns of life, as you said. Well, I mean, that's how I began my, really with EFM and then with my clinical pastoral education year, telling that story is you are trusting another human being with maybe some, some intimate details, maybe some shadowy stuff, maybe some un, unlived life stuff. So, um, it's a it's a risk to tell your story and um the main thing i do as a chaplain is i listen i allow for silence i say hmm Hmm. Like Dr. Lindbergh, I I do this, you know, tell me, tell me more. Tell me more. Um, there's a an article that I love that I've trained some of the help some of the palliative care fellows, and there's an article called um, Palliative Care Chaplain as Story Catcher. And I really that totally resonates with me because that is that's my role. It's to meet a patient, a family member, a directee. Um, I don't like the word spiritual director very much. I, I prefer spiritual companion. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, so that's how I think of myself more than a director. But um, the, the listening for the story, listening for the patterns, listening for the silences, feeling where the energy is in the story, and um, providing a safe space for that story, a, con a place of confidence that is um, everything is, uh, of course, held in confidence, both in chaplaincy and in spiritual direction. So just a, a safe space for someone to tell their story. Sometimes when I was in NICU and even now in palliative care, um, I hear stories of a life that will never be, uh, 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 an anticipated life that will never be now. So that's a story. I hear the story of a young person who will not have the future that they thought they would have. The stories of people who did not live an authentic life and are now in a position to say that and own that. It's all about the story. I'll meet you where you are, wherever that is, and we'll go from there. I see a question. Um, just finished a 45 year career as a nurse, and what I saw in critical care was the evolution, especially with technologies that very often uh, uh, 
client died while they were being ventilated, and the family became storytellers. And uh, we did not um, have, for many years, chaplains were a rarity. You might see at St. Bernard's and Jonesboro a sweet sister circulating, but not necessarily somebody trained to the mark of of helping somebody die well, which I think is critical. Uh, unfortunately, with COVID, it seems to be you're seeing more and more patients who are operators. And uh, how has that impacted your own um, practice, or do you see changes that you have to make, or how you have to refocus uh, on the family? If I, if I may just summarize for those who are online, if, if it get, could you? No, it's fine. fine but. Um, just maybe to, to put it briefly, uh, how has invasive technology like ventilators affected chaplaincy work when the person can't speak? Many times my patient is not the person in the bed. You know, my, my patient is the person who is open and willing to, to, to speak to a chaplain, um, family. Sometimes it's the nurse. Sometimes it's the physician. Sometimes it's the tech. Sometimes it's the respiratory therapist. So during this time of COVID, um, my role has shifted a, a bit, expanded, contracted, expanded, contracted. Um, I was talking to Kate earlier about the, if anything, this has shown us the, the great truth of impermanence in life. So, yes. Did I answer your question? Oh, I mean, that was a big, you had lots of parts to that question. Yes, you um, Living, I wanted to know, yeah, your work as a spiritual director or spiritual companion, I wanted you to tell us a little bit about what makes someone indicated or appropriate for having a spiritual director or companion? What might they gain from that? And kind of what the two parties do in that process? Well, the people come to spiritual direction for as many different reasons as there are people who come to spiritual direction. I think um, many times people are at a, in a, a place of transition themselves or asking themselves where, where is God, the Holy Spirit, uh, the universe, perhaps whatever your language is, um, where are you being pulled? Are you feeling stuck? Um, is there a transition happening in your life? Is there, you know, my, and, and as a chaplain, I'm seeing people in, usually in crisis. So um, a medical crisis. People might come to spiritual direction if they're in more of a personal crisis and need um, a place to go that's safe to talk about it and to um, speak it. The hearing into speech 
thing. Um, and that, but that is a question that would be um, my, my, I have a spiritual director too. And uh, that was the first thing we talked about is tell me more about why you're thinking about spiritual direction. So just to, to begin with that, what is it? What is that tug that's happening in you that maybe needs to be articulated? Maybe it needs to be felt physically, acknowledge the physical thing. It's mutual. I mean, I learn from my companions. It's a, it's a, it's a, Mutual relationship. Thank you, Libby. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Foster. Okay. I have a question about um, where you find your joy in hospital chaplaincy, particularly because when I did CPE, the thing I hated about it was going in cold with strangers. And I realized in my own pastoral work, I, I felt more drawn to a long term relationship with family. Um, and it was, I always think of hospital chaplains as kind of spiritual ninjas. You know, they like swoop in and they have a role with whatever is happening, and, and you may never see this person again. And so it could be hard to know are you doing, how, you know, what kind of impact you're having on folks? Or, and and that, it's just such a beautiful form of ministry that I, I, I really respect and don't feel called to in the same way. And so, I'm curious, like, where did, why that form for you and where's, where's the joy? Well, I know it's interesting because I'm an introvert, really. I can, I can be there and be out there and do that, but I really need to come back home to myself at the end of the day. And uh, so, yeah, knocking on a door, <laughs> I never know what's going to be on the other side of that door. And that's what my, my superintendent, my supervisor in, CPE was, it's like, we are agnostic. When we knock on that door, we have no idea what is on the other side. And my agenda is that I have no agenda except to show up and then um, see what happens. Yes, I think that's one reason why the um, metaphor of pilgrimage is interesting to me because when, when you're on that literal pilgrimage in Spain, what or any pilgrimage, you know, you're walking along and people kind of walk alongside you for a while. You might say a few words and the pace changes and you're kind of moving in and out of each other's lives and probably never to be seen again. And just to be able to be in that minute right there and um, appreciate it for what it is and not cling to it for anything. I've had really wonderful interactions with, um, with the patient. And then the next time I go in, it's, it's different. You know, the, you can't say, step into the same river twice sort of thing. The river changes and you've changed. So it's that, that same thing. I know it's, I, it, I do, it is joyful. I mean, it's not predicated on experience. It's just sort of, I'm alive. Wow. That's a miracle in itself. So that's where I find my joy. 
you feel like the spirit is with you, then you're talking about your reliance on the spirit working with you. Could you say more about that? Well, when you're going in cold like that, you know, finding your own grounding, finding your own ability to go with the flow and where is that flow and, and sensing that to me that's kind of the spirit mm -hmm. is trusting that you're supported as well that you are in the river mm -hmm. and you're not drowning right <laughs> it's a miracle that's a miracle too you yeah. know um yeah i never know what it's going to be like and to trust that it's the right thing at the right time and what will happen will happen and not being attached to the outcome of the visit. Let me, Rachel, I wanna to get to you in just one second, but uh, let me just check in here if there are any questions online because I wanna make sure I give uh, a chance for anyone who's online that has a question. Um, if you do, you can just like use the hand raise function or unmute yourself. Um, but then we've got some other questions here in the room too. So, anyone? All right. Well, if you do, uh, just use the hand raise function. And, and Kate if, can maybe keep an eye on on those if you, or, or put it in chat. Yes. So, um, Rachel, go ahead. I'm curious at what point along this journey, especially as an introvert, um, that you started to feel. Like you were saying the right things to other people, either either patients or clients or people to whom you're a spiritual companion. I find it easy to listen to other people and to continue to ask questions and that kind of thing, but I never ever have the confidence to give advice or yeah, that kind of thing. And so does that come from is that something you learned or is it something that came from being a mother or <laughs> my children might have a different answer advice giving than I do, but um well I think you know I've I've I studied, I've I've read a lot, I've experimented a lot, I have a, that training of, of in ESM was very helpful to me. My training in CPE was very helpful to me. My um, spiritual direction training was very helpful to me. But my role, as I see it, is to hold a space where you find your own <clears throat> wisdom. That you find your own bright shadow. That's, that's, that's my way of being a spiritual companion is to hold that space where you might explore and find your own inner wisdom. I'm not there. I can hold a mirror maybe back to you, but I'm not there to tell you what to do. What? Uh, just to follow up on that question, then, Dave, well, uh, but you mentioned before um, that you're often with people who don't manage to live an authentic life, and I um, and I wonder 
what in your spiritual direction with, with folks and, and, with a, and a, as a chaplain, what are the common barriers to that, that, that you see keeping people from, from arriving there? Well, I mentioned the, the bright shadow thing. I think that was, I'm, I'm talking about myself now, a barrier that I didn't claim my own gifts. So what I was able to do, thank goodness, was have somebody who could help me see those things and also see the, the, the things that, that were help that were made, that I was over identifying with my persona and not my authentic self and just sticking with it. That didn't answer your question about no, that. I, I the end of life. Well, I, I think that's that's helpful, but as an example of the kind of barrier, but, um, but yeah, are there any common themes, I guess, that you see with um, people who have reached into their life without an authentic engagement with it? Well, I find that um, those who have lived their life and not someone else's life, don't hold on to it so tightly. If you, the, the day by day, little deaths that we all have, that we all encounter, things that we thought were gonna happen that didn't happen, uh, things that we've had to let go of, uh, all of that is preparation for the big let go at the end. So if you're clinging really tightly to who you thought you were and now you see you weren't, that is, um, that's a hard thing. But I see beautiful, I mean, I see, um, I don't want to romanticize death, but I see families that um, have lived a true life where they have, they can look look back and they can still wish for more, more time, I wish I had more time, but they're, um, they're not clinging so tightly to something that's not, that you can't take with you. As you uh, work with people in the, in the river, so to speak, and you're trying to help them find their own way. How do you, uh, how are you inspired to say something and what words do you say? And how are you inspired to be silent and to let them experience, like, experience your support while you're helping them find their own way? How do you, how do you, well, I've learned to trust my instinct, my inner, my inner voice of what I'm, I mean, I've messed up so trust me, but I have learned to find an instinctual way to know. And that I mean, my patient is the expert. I'm not an expert, right? That's, that's the whole thing too, is that the patient, the dying person is the expert on dying. 
not me. So knowing that is um, a comfort to me that I don't, I'm not there to fix anything. That's a common misperception I think about uh, what chaplains do. I'm not there to fix anything. I'm there to be with you in happiness, in suffering, whatever. I'm there to be with you. I'm not there to do anything. Maybe I think it can be so important. Okay, what you're saying, I've been thinking the whole time you're talking. What a beautiful, soothing voice you have, and what a what a lovely, calm presence you have. But I think what you're saying, I want to highlight because how rare is it for us to get that every day? You see, someone to just be silent with us and to not expect a certain thing from us. <laughs> to just let us speak our own truth, our own story. You're doing that with people. Is so people want to give you advice every day. People are there to tell you things about your life every day. Okay, but what they get from you is something that, unless they're paying a hundred and something dollars an hour, you just don't normally get from people. I think that needs to be highlighted because it's not really about your advice. It's about your affirming, accepting, calming presence and your communication to them that what that their story is important and that they're the expert. You know, it's just obvious that that's what you give them. And that's just so important, I think. We all want to think our lives mattered. Mm -hmm. We all need a witness to our lives. Then, thanks so much for your time. I have like a question that's really big. I'm going to try to throw it out there and see if it lands if it doesn't. This whole idea of the Buddhism of impermanence, which in my experience is very frightening, but at the same time, coming through that to a place of possibility through that, or and how. How is your understanding of impermanence transformed and how do you see God as related to that? Mm -hmm. How is impermanence something more than just falling apart? <laughs> and where does God fit into that? See, I could have listed you on my mentor list because I did the um, meditation session right with you. So um, that was meditation is a very important tool that practice of things coming by and not grabbing on to them. Just to, to, um, to be able to observe without judging or um, trying to hold on to it. Yeah, impermanence as an, an opportunity, as an opening, a possibility of something new and different to be born, to be realized. 
That's, I'd like to think about that some more. Thank you. Well, I, I, uh, I see that you brought some books here. I have. And, um, and, and I, I think one of them is Richard Orr's Falling Upward, um, which as, as you were sharing your, your, your journey and talking about the sort of, um, you know, reaching a midpoint in life and, and having a need for a new, new perspective on what you were doing. Um, and I think that's such a helpful book um in, in thinking about that so so i'd love for you to talk maybe about how roar's framework might be helpful in um because he kind of moves from this like the first half of life where you're trying to achieve and do things and make your mark on the world and then the second half of life where you as you said you start to become a mentor and um and, and change your orientation so I'd love to hear how that's worked in, in your life. And uh, and then I'd love to hear any more about these other books that you brought. Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, Richard Rohr is a wonderful wisdom teacher and he's offered a lot to me. Um, yes, the midlife, when I said I was, something was missing for me when I was, when I reached that, point in my life and I later realized it was me I was who was missing it wasn't something out there that was missing I was missing and um, he is, is has the great language to express that what happens in your second half of life it doesn't have to be a linear physical second half of life but um, that seems to be a pattern but of of deciding what is no longer necessary, what is no longer relevant to you, what is, um, again, it's the pilgrimage metaphor of my, both, I've done the communion two times, two different versions of it, but all along the way, my backpack was weighting me down. I, kept, I just kept leaving things out of my backpack. Every day, my backpack got a little bit lighter and just that metaphor of what you need for the journey is what you think you might need for the journey could be weighing you down. And um, just maybe physically laying some burdens down that are no longer necessary for you. So that that's that's really what his all his books relate to that. This is the one that is particular to that, but um, he's, a, he's a great teacher. And which one is that? This is Falling Upward, uh, Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life. Other questions or? Well, one of the, um, you brought some other books, and I, and I see um, Tulka Wandi uh, um, being mortal. And that, that's something that, in my own uh, CPE education, that was one of the assigned assigned books. And um, so I wonder for you know for families who are for individuals and families who are facing death, 
Um, and, and you're coming in as a chaplain to all people of all beliefs. You're, you're not there with a particular spiritual, um, I mean, you're coming from a particular tradition, but you're not offering that to them. Um, and, and, but you're at this point that's so important and, you know, is the thing that so many spiritual traditions really are built around in addressing this question of, of what happens when we die and, and how do we live into death. And, um, so how do you deal with that with, with families? And then do you recommend things like being mortal, and, um, which is, you know, or, or, their, or their books or, you know, in maybe particular situations, you feel like a family would benefit from something like that. Um, <clears throat> yes, uh, UAMS is, has a wide variety of faith traditions represented within the staff, actually, and then within our patient population, and then some people who have no faith tradition, that that's not where they find their spiritual uh, journey being fed. So um, I'm there to support whatever is your way, your means, whatever gives you comfort. I, I want to support, support that. So I am very mindful that I'm not, I'm, I'm not a proselytizer at all. That is not what I do. I'm there to support whatever might be giving you meaning. If you want to talk about how much you love to hike and how you found your spiritual nature in, in nature, then I would love to hear more about that. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a family member recently diagnosed with ALS. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of, uh, it's not a push tricky young member. Do you see a distinction in dealing with individuals who are, instead of being right at death's door, it's a little further down the hallway and they're helping out, but they're still starting to confront and address those issues that a lot of people don't do till closer to the very end? Mm -hmm. uh, do you run across or maybe any kind of distinctions in your practice? Right. Well, and working with palliative care like I do, that is. Um, you know, palliative care can begin way upstream when, when you are, in fact, the further upstream, farther upstream, you can begin that um, journey, the, the better. We, um, so palliative care is, uh, we do probably half pain and symptom management, half goals of care, end of life um, stuff, end of life things, sickness. But whenever you are diagnosed with a life shortening disease, would be a time when you might take advantage of palliative care because with palliative care, it's an interdisciplinary department service where we have a chaplain. We have a physician, of course. We have uh, advanced practice nurses. We have nurses. We have social worker. We have a chaplain. We have someone uh, from ethics. We have a pharmacist. So all of those things to support the person who has ALS, not ALS, but the person who has AL, who has been diagnosed with ALS. So that would be a way that we can work 
to be on this journey with you and support you in whatever gives your life meaning to improve your quality of life would be the purpose of palliative care. I've seen your example of being there rather than communicating with people as I visit my mother-in-law in a nursing home and she's uh, suffering from dementia and uh, doesn't always communicate but if we're, if we're there and showing her love and affection without jabbering away and just being there and waiting for a word or two that she might say and oftentimes at the end of the visit she'll come up with something or she'll recognize uh, us or say some name or something that's that's precious that's golden but the point is if we weren't there supporting her uh, we wouldn't be helping her and that's something that we're learning from her and i think that's one of the things that uh, we learned is to, to just to be there for people rather than to communicate or try and tell them something or get them to do something it's a matter of waiting for them to, to come forth that's an important thing just to be there and i think you mentioned that and that's, that's important that i found you're exactly right. And it's it's hard to resist that temptation to do, you know, when but but showing up is you can't put a price on that. We are, are cautioned in, in our CPE training that if a patient or a family member uh, requests a Bible, we don't just walk in, hand them the Bible and turn around and walk out you have seat and you say you i understand you asked for a bible i just wanted to tell me what's tell me what's going on to, for you today just to find out there's a meaning i'm always looking for the meaning behind the the words the expression the body language what's the meaning of this Providing space for your, is it your mother? Pardon? Is it your mother? Who is My mother -in -law. your mother? -in -law. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like you said, she's she's the expert. You all are there to be with her. You're there. Yes. Well, Libby, um, thank you so much for being here. It's um, Talking about being, it's it's been a gift just to be in your, your presence and as you've um, shared your your journey and insights. We're we're coming up on the on the clock, um, and all things good things have to come to an end, and we have got another service to get to. But I wanted to to close by asking if um, you know for for those of us here who are wanting to deepen our spiritual lives. Um, is there something, and I know you can't speak to all of our experiences, but, but is there something for you that you wish you had found sooner? Like that, that um, it, it would have been helpful to you, whether it's a book or a practice or, um, and maybe we could, we could end our conversation with that if you have, if you have anything. Yeah. 
Well, I really sort of think everything happened in my life as it, it unfolded as it should have. I wasn't ready to do what I did now 20 years ago. So um, I'm, I have learned from my journey to be um, gentler with myself. And if I can be gentler with myself, then I can be gentler with others and kinder and um, I have many teachers that I turn to. Um, one is the late Ram Das, who said, we're walking each other home. And that's how I feel about my work and my life. And we're all just walking each other home. That's a great, great word to end on. Thank you so much, Libby. And um, our series will continue next week with uh, Allison Hollenberg. Uh, we'll be here to talk about her practice of yoga and kind of it, um, we'll be exploring a variety of questions, but, uh, but, but especially living into our bodies and, uh, and, and her, her journey with, with, with yoga practices. So um, thank you again to, to Libby and